Hello, everyone, and welcome back to NATO's Road to Madrid, the CSIS podcast where we're breaking down the main issues on NATO's agenda ahead of its summit in Madrid this June. After a short pause, we are back and we will be releasing regular episodes in the coming weeks and months. My name is Pierre Marcos. I am a visiting fellow with the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at CSIS. Hello, and I'm Louis Simon. I'm the Argyros Family Foundation Visiting Fellow with the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at CSIS. Our former host, Rachel Hellehers, has sadly departed CSIS since the recording of our last episode. She has gone to Brussels to take on the duty of Secretary of Defense Representative in Europe and the Defense Advisor for the US mission to NATO, a well-deserved appointment. For now, Luis and I, as well as our colleague Sean Monaghan, another visiting fellow, will take over hosting duties. We miss Rachel, but the show goes on. All right, so when we published our last episode back in December uh, 21, Russia had amassed troops on the border of Ukraine, but there was uh, much uncertainty as to whether uh, President Vladimir Putin was prepared for preparing for a real invasion or playing a reckless game of brinkmanship. Now, tragically, we have our answer and we have the first major uh, war in Europe for decades. NATO and its members have responded with a series of immediate moves from providing lethal and non-lethal aid to Ukraine, to welcoming refugees, to announcing new troop reinforcements on its eastern flank. At the same time, the adaptive processes that have been the focus of this podcast, in particular, the development of a new strategic concept are still underway. NATO will still have a summit in Madrid in June and allied leaders will endorse the strategic concept there. So for our first episode of the second part uh, of NATO's Road to Madrid, Pierre and I uh, spoke with two highly respected experts, uh, Lawrence Speranza, who's the director of the Transatlantic Defense and Security Program at the Center for European Policy Analysis, uh, CIPA, and Dan Hamilton, who's a senior fellow uh, uh, with the SAIS Foreign Policy Institute, a non-resident senior fellow with the Brookings Institution, and a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs. Dan and Lauren uh, shared with us their insights and observations on Putin's war of aggression and NATO's response uh, so far. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Uh, Dan, Lauren, thank you uh, for joining us for this timely discussion on uh, NATO's response to uh, Russian aggression of, uh, of, of Ukraine and more broadly about the larger implications uh, of that conflict on uh, the alliance. But let's start with uh, the most recent big story. Uh, we are recording this podcast on Friday, March 25th, and just yesterday, NATO leaders met for an extraordinary meeting in Brussels to discuss their response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. On the same day, leaders of the G7 and of the EU also met. And this uh, summit follows a series of high-level meetings at NATO, starting with a virtual summit uh, just after the invasion, but also meetings of the defense and foreign affairs ministers. Dan, uh, let me start uh, with you. Can you help us walk through the main decisions taken by leaders yesterday and give us your assessment of the main, main outcomes of uh, yesterday's meeting? Well, the summit was intended first and foremost to anchor allied unity in the face of Putin's war in Ukraine. It, it's a remarkable display of unity. I think 30 countries you know, in the NATO alliance 
coming together, but also, you know, President Biden meeting with EU leaders and also the G7, all of that coming together, that was President Biden's suggestion that this happened like this. And on the NATO front, uh, it was important not only to display unity, but also to uh, enhance the flow of arms to Kyiv, to, uh, to speak to President Zelensky directly, to understand what uh, Ukraine needs, to uh, sort out additional economic sanctions, to further isolate Moscow, uh, to reinforce the alliance's uh, immediate deterrence posture. There was a uh, commitment to deploy additional battle groups to southern, southeastern European uh, NATO uh, allies. That's a significant extension of NATO's uh, posture, uh, all while avoiding a slip into a wider war, which is the line that NATO has been trying to straddle. They made a particular point about potential use of weapons of mass destruction, chemical agents perhaps, and others, and to uh, put those elements of NATO forces on high alert, uh, but also to provide Ukraine directly with the kinds of equipment that they may need in the case of some ex escalation in that direction, which would be quite unfortunate. And then the president in Poland following that uh, also to highlight the humanitarian disaster that's unfolding. We have 10 million displaced Ukrainians, many uh, millions of them spilling into other European countries, in uh, Poland in particular, and the US taking agreeing to take in 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. Most Ukrainians will want to stay in Europe, but the fact that the United States, despite the polarized immigration debate we have in our country, to make that commitment, I think, was, uh, was significant. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Loren, do you have uh, comments to, to add? Well, I agree with everything Dan highlighted. Um, those certainly were the major, the wave tops coming out of the meetings. But, you know, I do think this was, as as Dan said, you know, the major goal of this was to keep allies from drifting apart to ensure that there is no return to business as usual. And I think President Biden was personally very passionate about making this trip in person to ensure that that was the case. And I think all of the announcements that we saw about, especially coming out of the NATO meeting, you know, uh, more forces to Eastern Europe with higher readiness, with more supplies, with more pre-positioned equipment, the new battle groups, military leaders were also tasked with options to reset NATO's long-term force posture in Europe, which I understand will be discussed at the Madrid summit. All of this really, uh, you know, in addition to that new plans to increase defense investment, all of these things are, I think, a steady continuation of what the Alliance has started uh, since the invasion began. You know, this is uh, this reinforcement that we have slowly been adding to the Eastern flank. We're putting more forces, more equipment, we're resetting our long-term force posture. We've activated elements of the NRF. We've given SACIR more authority to act. We've doubled the size of the battle groups. And so I think all of this suggests that we're starting to move from this strategy of deterrence by tripwire to deterrence by defense. I hope we're heading in that direction. We're not quite there yet, uh, but I think this is a recognition that we are in a new reality um, and that NATO really is once again, going back to basics to refocus on territorial defense uh, in a really meaningful way. And so I think all of this will be playing out uh, in the months to come. Thank you both. Uh, this is indeed a very significant evolution in, in, in NATO's thinking and doing. 
And I'm wondering if, if you're both uh, satisfied with the results of yesterday's meeting or we're hoping for more. And also beyond uh, yesterday, I wanted to push us to think a bit more about uh, NATO's overall response uh, to Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. How do you assess uh, the concrete actions that both the alliance and individual members, uh, uh, individual allies have taken since the 24th of February when the invasion uh, began, both in terms of supporting Ukraine, but also in terms of the reassurance, uh, the reassurance measures uh, to, to the frontline allies that you were just discussing. What's your, what's your assessment? Has NATO done everything that it could have done? Could it have done more? Should, should it uh, have done more? And can it still do more? So what are your thoughts on that? Lauren, why don't we, why don't we start with you now? Well, I think it's worth acknowledging at the top that, you know, I think NATO has done a remarkable job of, you know, being unified and quickly responding to this major conventional war that erupted in the heart of Europe. And NATO has stayed true to its mission of deterring an attack on the allied territory, but it has not succeeded in uh, deterring Putin from starting a major war in Europe. And so even though Ukraine is not a NATO member, um, I think NATO does have a reputational kind of risk that we're talking about here in terms of its ability to prevent this type of conflict in the Euro-Atlantic area. I'm of the personal opinion, and I, I should acknowledge first, I mean, I think this is a very tricky balance between there's a moral imperative to support Ukraine and to act uh, in support of Ukraine against Russia to stop the slaughter of innocent civilians by this dictator uh, and this pointless, unjustified, unprovoked war. But there's also a responsibility, you know, not to escalate the war further, to have it kind of spread beyond Ukraine to the rest of Europe, and also to balance the, the costs of actually maintaining some of the sanctions and things that we have imposed on Russia, which has impact on our publics at home. Um, so this is a very difficult balance uh, that NATO has, and NATO leaders have been trying to, to strike. Um, I'm of the personal opinion that I, I think we came out too soon in the crisis drawing lines about what we wouldn't do. We said very, very strongly, uh, President Biden said, you know, we will not put boots on the ground. We will not do this. We will not do that, which I completely understand the domestic political reasons for doing so. But I do think that that undermined deterrence to an extent. You know, I think ambiguity could be our friend here, um, regardless of our intentions, even if we had no intent of putting boots on the ground. Just the fact that we said that so publicly, I think, you know, part of the goal here is to keep Putin guessing about what will trigger a response. And so, uh, you know, now that we have done that, we're in a difficult position to try and gain back the initiative and reestablish deterrence because we've already kind of said what we what we won't do. So I think we're the alliance is being careful now um, because we don't want to escalate, but we can't be too worried just about Putin's reaction. We can't let him dominate the terms of escalation and set the terms of the conversation here. You know, Putin's going to do what he wants to do. He pretty much has every excuse that he needs. So it's up to us to show him what's tolerable and what's not, because he's certainly not going to stop in Ukraine. And, you know, what we do now matters. Excellent. Thanks, uh, Lauren. Dan, I, I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about NATO's approach to Ukraine and, and to the eastern flank more broadly, of course. So what's your own assessment of NATO's uh, actions since the 24th of February on, on those two counts, Ukraine and eastern flank more broadly? Well, I think part of the early thinking was not to give Putin any pretext for going further than he clearly was going. 
he was seeking pretexts. He was seeking, you know, fabricated reasons why Russian troops would invade to be seen as defending uh, rather than being the aggressor. Uh, and, you know, unbalanced words by the President of the United States or others at that moment could have fallen into that trap. So I actually don't, I think the President's words at that time were quite important about saying what we wouldn't do, because that would have potentially, you know, fallen into what Putin wanted. The same with the Ukrainians. They were very careful at the beginning of the conflict not to initiate any, uh, you know, aggressive moves toward, back toward Russia. Uh, they basically remained defenseless and let the Russians attack to, to show the world, you know, what was really happening. So we can criticize it, but I think in that moment, it was important to rob Putin of the narrative. And since then, the president has not been saying what he's not going to do. He's been saying what they are doing. What they are doing is, as we said, is bolstering the, the eastern flank of NATO in many, many ways, providing lethal aid uh, to Ukraine. Uh, I think we can debate the timing and the, you know, how quickly and so on. They didn't deploy the NATO response force as quickly as I would have thought they should have, for instance. I think we could still do a lot more, a lot more in terms of providing lethal uh, assistance to Ukraine. I think the no-fly zone was a distraction because more Ukrainian airplanes in the sky will just get shot down because the Russians can just shoot them down. What the Ukrainians have done and why Russia doesn't control the airspace is because they have other uh, weapons that are more effective than airplanes, like surface-to-air uh, missiles, like the anti-armor uh, missiles. Countries have thousands of these capabilities that they could provide. There, we are providing a lot, but we could do so much more. And I think it's in that realm now that we need to just keep funneling the supplies. I think we also have to think not just of the eastern border of Ukraine, but think of its southern uh, border, uh, which is the Black Sea, because that's a strategic area. We have NATO uh, nations also on, on the Black Sea, and that's a critical area. It starts to involve maritime forces, uh, but also could provide a whole area of support for Ukraine that NATO should, I think, step up uh, to do. Lauren's done a lot of work on that and others. And so I think we need to think of Ukraine in the holistic way, not just the, you know, the border with Poland. The weakest area might be, again, not the NATO-Ukraine flank, but uh, tiny Moldova, you know, also a non-NATO country. The poorest country in Europe is being overwhelmed by refugees right now. Uh, it also has a separatist entity on its territory where there are 1,500 Russian troops. Uh, and if Russia does want to extend this conflict and go for Odessa, you know, the Black Sea port of Ukraine, third largest city, Russian troops could come out of Transnistria, this separatist entity, from Moldovan territory to invade uh, Ukraine. That would draw Moldova into a wider war and all of us into the prospect of something that's going to, could escalate beyond some, somebody's control. So we have to look for these weak points and, and, buffer, and buffer them and shore them up as well. But there was a good uh, interaction on Moldova, I think, at the summit and the EU leaders also. Uh, but we need to do more there and, and pay attention to Moldova because I am concerned about uh, what's happening there. Excellent. Thanks, Dana. I'm sure we'll, we'll follow up on, on, on Moldova later on because this is obviously a very important point. But I just wanted to go back to uh, Lauren's uh, point about moving beyond this concept of deterrence by tripwire 
uh, you were talking about deterrence by defense, and I think uh, the Secretary General uh, used uh, those very uh, those very words himself, uh, Lauren. Uh, but what does that mean exactly? And 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 perhaps more importantly, what what further measures uh, should NATO adopt to implement that vision and transition from uh, deterrence by tripwire to deterrence uh, by by defense, as you put it yourself? Sure. Uh, and I know Dan has been thinking a lot about this too and can add, but you know, essentially the, the crux of this issue is the, the conventional force imbalance that we have, that the alliance has with Russia in the region. And the fact that they're the battle groups that we talk so much about, which are the crux of the alliance's presence in the eastern flank, you know, those are really only a battle group of about a thousand to fifteen hundred troops, you know, per kind of uh, battle group. And you know, for an entire country, you know, we have one in, in each of the Baltic states and one in Poland, and now the four new ones that we heard uh, coming out of the summit. So we we basically have eight of those battle groups, and it's important. They're stretching from the Baltic Sea down to the Black Sea, and initially the thinking behind that was that that was a deterrent because NATO is present in the region, but they are not fully equipped and enabled to be able to fully defend the area if if it were to be attacked. And so NATO's strategy right now relies on a bunch of reinforcement forces that would follow on to, to behind those battle groups that are in the region. Um, and, you know, it's not just a question of boots on the ground. You know, these units need to have a whole bunch of you know, what we call enablers, you know, things that allow them to do their mission. Uh, and these are supplies, these are logistics, these are air defense units so that they have cover, their communications and intelligence units. Uh, there's all kinds of things that go along with those forces that have not been up to par. And so I think part of the, the idea is that, yes, we need to increase more forces so that we can have a, a forward defense, but we also need to have them backed up by a lot of these enablers that allow them to succeed if, if there were to be an incursion uh, on NATO territory. And, you know, the second half of that is having the NATO response force and the VJTF and other follow-on forces on higher readiness alerts, able to flow into the region more quickly so that we can not just have this deterrence by reinforcement, but actually have a bigger footprint in the region to counter Russia's force imbalance. And, and part of that uh, might also involve permanent presence, uh, elements of permanent presence coming from the United States and, and elsewhere, which has traditionally been quite controversial and the U.S. has been opposed to this. We have the constraints of the, the NATO-Russia Founding Act, which, you know, now is defunct. I think uh, most people uh, uh, agree on that because of Russia's actions in Ukraine. And so perceivably, you know, those, those restrictions are no longer there and that can open the door for us to do more in the region, uh, not just on a persistent basis, but perhaps on a permanent basis. And I think that's something that the U.S. is mulling over. Let me have a, a follow-up question about EU-NATO cooperation during that uh, crisis. The, the level of coordination between the, the two institutions uh, has been quite remarkable since the beginning of the invasion. One illustration was uh, the day after the invasion, this joint uh, press conference between the leaders of, of the NATO and EU institutions. Dan, what is your assessment uh, of this uh, cooperation between EU and NATO? Is it in its full potential, or should we do more in that regard? Well, I think there's a short-term and then a longer-term answer to that. Uh, I think in the short term, as I said, it's remarkable the unity that extends across our, all of our institutions and how this has been uh, worked and developed, including NATO-EU, uh, despite lots of you know issues that 
always bedevil that relationship. Uh, but so far, uh, it's been quite remarkable. But in a longer term, we have to think about the relative um, roles and responsibilities. And if you now step back and think about the broader context in which we are considering uh, Europe's security going forward, I, I think the setting now is important. And that uh, I think Luis had hinted in, the, in you know, we're having a summit in Madrid president said yesterday, we're going to address the longer term issues there. So I think we have to step back and look at the European effort and all of this in a different context. That is the alliance together, Europe, the United States, we are facing the most complex strategic challenge we have faced in the history of NATO, period. It is maybe not as severe as in the Cold War in, a, in that way, but it's more complex. And that's the point. So we have to think about all of these different strands and they're all very linked. It's not just uh, you know, a military uh, issue. You can see the power of the sanctions here, uh, which is again, where the EU would play uh, more of a role. So if I had to project what NATO has to do for a strategic concept, which is intended to be like a decade long you know, document, I think we have to brace ourselves for persistent confrontation with Russia throughout that entire period. We have to brace ourselves, uh, win, lose, or draw for Putin in Ukraine, that the vast spaces of Eastern Europe will be turbulent, uncertain, and sporadically violent, or as far as we can see. And that this ties into a deeper trend of what I would have called the age of disruption, that if you think globally what's happening, uh, the North Atlantic and the Indo-Pacific theaters are starting to uh, become interlinked strategically. What China does right now on the Ukraine crisis is really fundamental, whether it sides with Putin, and then we're going to have a whole conversation about secondary sanctions on China, or whether it tries to play straddle this line that it's doing right now. It's fundamental. It shows how important now China is to even European uh, considerations. So the Alliance needs to think about all of these things. And we have to realize also the US has commitments in the Indo-Pacific region in particular that are also important to European security. So coming back to your, your original question about rebalancing about the EU NATO, my colleagues and I in the task force report have suggested instead of talking about this term strategic autonomy, which right now seems quite out of place with everything we're doing, autonomous means you want to go your own way. I don't think most Europeans want to go their own way right now. Let's talk about what the Finns call strategic responsibility uh, for Europe. There has been remarkable changes right now, many European countries, Germany in particular, but Denmark even, uh, many countries that are you know, reversing longstanding trends in, in their approach to defense and security. And I think we need to acknowledge that, welcome that, but at the moment, all they pledge to do is just spend more money. <clears throat> they haven't said to what goal, what purpose will they do this? So I think we need to align the purpose with your original question. What should the Europeans strive to do? And to put it out there, I think, back to Lauren's question, we are gonna to move to a forward defense posture, deterrence by denial. When we say defend every inch of NATO territory, that has military implications. And Europeans need to be there at the front flank 
doing deterrence by denial. That's going to transform many European militaries. Second, because of these interconnections with the Indo-Pacific and the North Atlantic, as a strategic goal for the next 10 years, I believe, and others have argued, Europe should set its goal to provide half, one half, of the capabilities and the enablers that allow Europe, NATO, to defend against Russia. Right now, the United States does most of it. And so uh, Europe needs to step up because the U.S. can't do both the Indo-Pacific and the European theater primarily on its own. And then third, Europe needs to be the first responder to crises all along its southern uh, periphery. I think that's the original French motivation, you can correct me, but uh, for much of this idea of strategic autonomy, the European, uh, the strategic compass that the EU just now unveiled about 5,000 force uh, group. It's intended to you know, put out fires, it's tend to be crisis management operations, still important, but I don't think in the current context, you can count on the United States to provide all of the enablers for Europeans to deal with these crises. Europe has to do it. And so that's a tall order. It's a decade long order. But if Europe is serious about security and wants to keep the United States engaged and also understand these linkages with the Indo-Pacific, I would argue that that's the recipe that we have to enshrine in the strategic concept to rebalance our relationship. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Lauren, l- let me just uh, follow up on, on this point on the Indo-Pacific uh, that Dan was, uh, was making, because uh, many of us are indeed wondering uh, about uh, what the war in Ukraine might mean for the so-called U.S. rebalance in the Pacific. And it seems uh, indeed that the uh, Biden administration would prefer to focus on, on, on addressing the rise of China. So what are your own thoughts with respect to how the invasion and the war uh, will hinder, slow, or distract from this wider shift in U.S. foreign policy attention and resources? Well, I think you're right. When the Biden administration came in, they really did have kind of a laser focus on China and uh, were really prioritizing the Indo-Pacific. We saw some of that in the interim kind of national security guidance about how China was the pacing threat and, and Russia was kind of second to that. I think as a result of the war in Ukraine, Russia has certainly moved up and, and equalized with China, if not has become more important as the the most urgent short-term security challenge, at least in the Euro-Atlantic space. Um, And so I do think this is causing a little bit of a shift in U.S. thinking. It has certainly cemented uh, U.S. involvement uh, in uh, Eastern Europe in terms of force posture and in terms of engaging in, in the European security space. Um, And I think the U.S. is also kind of doing a little bit of rewriting of that national defense strategy, the national security strategy, which we had expected perhaps to come out already by now. But of course, current events have fundamentally changed the priority set. And so I think we'll see that reflected in those documents when they do come out. You know, we don't have the luxury of being able to choose our threats. We have to, as the United States, walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to be able to simultaneously balance the challenge of Russia and China, the potential for collapse collaboration between the two. And we also have to balance this challenge of strategic simultaneity, the fact that we could have simultaneous crises erupting in Europe and the Indo-Pacific. And figuring out how to balance uh, the two of those is still a major problem for the United States and figuring out where exactly European allies and partners can plug in, both in the European continent, but also thinking about, you know, if there are one or two that might uh, send certain support to the Indo-Pacific. 
So this is still uh, the challenge, although, you know, Russia has certainly risen in the priority list. That doesn't mean that the China challenge is not relevant. It's relevant in both of the, the military theater in the Indo-Pacific, but also for Europe, it's still relevant. I mean, the, the rise of China has security implications inside the European theater in terms of foreign malign influence, in terms of debt diplomacy, in terms of cyber attacks, in terms of intellectual property theft and tech and innovation issues. So it's still very much on NATO's radar in terms of finding ways to address the China challenge, even if, you know, Russia is the kind of most pressing challenge for now. Terrific. Uh, th- thanks, Lauren. And, and let me just very, very quickly uh, follow up on, on something you, you just brought up, uh, the Sino-Russian relationship, right? Because uh, there's been a lot of speculation about how the whole Ukraine uh, war is uh, affecting uh, the relationship between Russia and China. Uh, so it, it'd be great to get your take on that uh, from, from you both. Uh, do, you, do you think this is this is weakening uh, uh, the the uh, the ties between Russia and China, or is it strengthening the relationship between the two? As you know, there's been a lot of discussion lately on on that very point, and this is uh, and this is indeed very very important for both for the United States, but also for its allies in the Euro-Atlantic as well as the Indo-Pacific. I'd be I'd be keen on on hearing your thoughts on that, Dan. What, what are your thoughts on on, on that? Well, China has a choice to make right now, whether it will side with Putin, try to evade the sanctions or not. China's you know, economic future is much more deeply tied to the West than it is to Russia. But China does need um, energy from Russia. So it's not like there's no relationship. And uh, the idea that Russia might be a bit beholden to China is maybe not such a bad idea in the mind of uh, Xi Jinping. On the other hand, as I say, China's interests are elsewhere. And it's also facing, we should not think China's just out there uh, ready to scoop up everything. It's facing its own internal challenges. There is a a lot of economic pressure building up in China right now. The president uh, is trying to have a new party Congress install himself for the first time as yet another term. Uh, He's trying to show his own successes there you know, they're, they're facing real uh, dilemmas. And so I think what we need to do is, you know, make clear the consequences uh, of China's choices uh, as they go forward. And we need to understand in our context that, as I said, the North Atlantic and the Indo-Pacific are really strategically linked. China's challenges to the commons, navigation commons, information commons, you name it, uh, much, much of Europe's trade with the Pacific goes through straits that are challenged by China. And uh, so there, you know, Europe has a real interest in this. Chinese investment in defense related supply chains, uh, ports, back to Lauren's point, you know, our NATO strategy of uh, the tripwire is rapid reinforcement from the United States to European ports. We would, you would have American soldiers landing at Chinese owned ports uh, in Europe. That's the current reality. Uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense right now. So we have to rethink uh, uh, much of that. And I, and I think you know, that's, that's the, the bigger challenge that we have to face uh, with, uh, with China. Thank you, Dan. Uh, let me have a follow-up question on this specific issue of, of NATO and China. Uh, Lauren, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, NATO still needs to, to focus on the many challenges posed by uh, China, and we have noticed over the past few years uh, uh, shifting priorities within the alliance from Russia to, to, to China. Uh, as NATO is now 
uh, focusing on this persistent confrontation with Russia, as mentioned by Dan. Uh, how can the alliance strike the good balance between uh, these two uh, strategic challenges? Well, it's an important question, and I think this also goes back to uh, the question to Dan on NATO-EU cooperation, because I think a lot of the ways that uh, we counter Chinese influence and the security challenges coming from China's rise, the EU actually has the responsibility and the tools and the mandate to do some of that, um, especially when it comes to regulatory powers and budgetary powers. So I think this is a great area for NATO-EU cooperation. And that's not to say that NATO doesn't have anything to do on this. It, it absolutely does need to strike a balance. Um, I think the challenge with Russia, uh, while it also is engaging in many hybrid activities, you know, the military threat from Russia is, is more kind of potent than the military threat from China for the alliance right now. Um, I think the alliance's tasks on China are more focused on things like resilience building, uh, on cybersecurity, on, on tech and innovation. So I think that is perhaps where the alliance will focus a lot of its efforts vis-a-vis -vis China, uh, whereas with Russia, it's really more of a territorial defense uh, type mission in addition to some of the, the hybrid challenges as well. But if that's helpful, just to think about the, the difference in the threats in the short term. Thank you so much, uh, Lauren. Uh, it's uh, already uh, uh, time. So, so let me ask the, the final question to you, Dan, uh, about the, the political sustainability of NATO's response to, to this uh, war. Uh, we have seen, as you mentioned, that the initial response of the alliance has been quite strong and cohesive, uh, but now the challenge is to sustain uh, that effort over the long term because we uh, are already uh, one month after the invasion. We know that uh, this war might uh, last uh, quite uh, long uh, still. So what are the main threats to this uh, political cohesion within the alliance and how can NATO uh, avoid a loss of momentum in its response? Well, again, it's hard to know how the conflict will continue to play itself out. I, I stand by what I said earlier. I don't imagine any scenario, any scenario, win, lose, or draw, in which Europe's eastern spaces won't be turbulent and uncertain for at least another decade. So even if there's a you know settlement and, and Russia withdraws its forces, which seems hard to imagine at the moment, but even say the best scenario, Putin won't be satisfied with that. Uh, and let's not just think about Ukraine. Let's think about the Russian tactics with its neighborhood. In every case, uh, Russian efforts have been to claim some chunk of territory to install either separatists or their own forces so that they can have leverage within the inside the territory of neighboring countries. You know, the, the EU has something called the Eastern Partnership, six countries in Eastern Europe. Russia has troops in all of them now. So, so much for the Eastern Partnership, uh, unless the EU can you know, rethink things. So that's a broader tactic of Russia's security strategy with its neighborhood. And so they like to call these frozen conflicts. These are not frozen conflicts. These are festering wounds that you know, erupt every once in a while. They continue to erupt and they will continue to erupt uh, going forward. So we have to, that's the strategic reality we have to now uh, confront. So I think 
it is not the post-Cold War era stability in which our instrument was, you know, it was a magnetic, largely unchallenged Western-led order that continued to expand, taking countries in uh, as they could manage, and then Russia would even find a place. It's a very different order in which these countries are being held back and disrupted. And all of those disruptions flow back into Western societies. Think of the energy issues, think of cyber attacks. All the critical functions of our societies are being disrupted by the same tools that Putin is using to disrupt his neighborhood. The, the solar winds attack in the United States started out as the NotPetya attack in Ukraine. It was the same tool. So what happens in Ukraine doesn't stay in Ukraine. Uh, and, and that's the reality. So I, I'm actually more comfortable. I think we will have a united position between Europe and the United States on this if we can understand that this we're in this now again for the long haul. Uh, and I think the, the rupture point or the you know, pressure point, if you will, will come with the nature of the settlement you know, becomes clearer. And then some could say, oh, you now we're back to peace. Let's go back to that era that we loved so much. I think that'll be a mistake because I don't see a sustainable basis for it right now. Uh, we have to understand that the Soviet succession is continuing. That's a century type of thing that we have to think about. Uh, and that's, I think, the critical uh, element and the, one, and the one point I didn't mention on the China, which is important though on that, is that you know, when the Berlin Wall came down, we were so focused in the joy of it all, that Europe uniting, Germany uniting in peace with all of its allies and now surrounded by democratic allies for the first time in its history. Uh, I think we failed now, but it's becoming clearer. There, there were two other revolutions at the same time that are continuing. One is the Soviet succession is not over. And, and the borders of that vast space are undecided. And that the Chinese, you know, Tiananmen response in 1989 was exactly the opposite of what the Soviet Union and Mikhail Gorbachev did. They clamped down. Their, Xi Jinping's greatest horror would be another Mikhail Gorbachev in Russia or Boris Yeltsin. That's why China feels it's connected to Putin because it wants that vast space to be you know, controlled. It doesn't want chaos all over its borders and Eurasia. And I think we have to confront that this is the kind of bond that's holding those countries together now. Uh, and th there's a real bond there. It's not just about you know, short-term interests. So that's Eurasia that we're facing. Uh, I'm confident that the West is gonna get this, but we have to tease it through. We have to not only do the short-term things right, the medium term are the sanctions right now, but the long term is the strategic concept, positioning our alliance for the next decade or more, and being ready and agile and adaptable to this age of disruption and persistent confrontation. It'll just require a complete change of our mindsets as much as anything else. Excellent. Uh, thanks, Dan. I, I think you, you, you've made a very important point about the, uh, the war in Ukraine, namely that uh, uh, regardless of whether there's a Russian win, uh, whatever, whatever that means, of course, or a defeat or even a draw, uh, the eastern flank is, is likely to, to remain that stable, right? I think that, uh, unstable. I think, I think that's, a very, that's a very important uh, takeaway. 
so uh, th this has been a very uh, uh, stimulating and, and informative uh, debate. So I just wanted to thank you, uh, thank you both uh, for your for your time, and and look forward to continuing the conversation as we get closer to the uh, to the summit in Madrid in in June. Thank you, thank you both. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. That was another episode of NATO's Road to Madrid. Thank you to Lauren and Dan for joining us and to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you also to the team at CSIS, to my colleague Colin Wall, our lead researcher and coordinator on the project, and to our editor, Ilana Nevins. If you like what you heard, please check out our page on the CSIS website, subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice, and leave us a rating and review. See you next time. <laughs>